I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 7. That will be our reading this morning. Will you stand with me out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God? 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You recall, brethren, our our labor and hardship and how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And your witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You may be seated. I feel a little bit this morning like we are touching on ground. We covered in some measure last week as we said big changes have been happening in church life in the last several decades. Last time we mentioned that a massive change in preaching has occurred. A major shift has come to pass in the church and for reasons um, uh, of changes in culture and and basic biblical illiteracy and ignorance of Bible doctrine, it's thought that we need a whole new way to to preach to people. It would have to be funny. It would need to be in a likable manner. It would need to be practical. Without that, we're told the church couldn't grow. Similarly, when we turn to the concept of manner of ministry, we also know that a significant change has uh, rippled across uh, the church today. It's been going on for at least a few decades. And basically, this also is grounded in the earnest desire to grow the church, or at least that's what we're told. And the change is in the manner of ministry, and the particular change is in what the pastor is supposed to be. For 2,000 years, we've said that the pastor is to be a shepherd. A pastor is to be a shepherd. A pastor is to be one who sticks close to the sheep. He's one to be there to provide pastoral care. He's one to be there to visit people who are in the hospital. He's one to be there to do the funerals and the weddings. He's the one to be there, to be on the other end of the phone, to to listen when you call for help in your spiritual distress or providential distress. You see, it was always thought that the best way to do this work of ministry was after the manner of a shepherd. 
but, but the new model or uh, a manner of ministry is, is said to be different. Instead of being a shepherd, the pastor is to be a rancher. A rancher. No, no longer involved in the nitty-gritty of ministry. That, that is unnecessary unto him, really. What the manner of ministry needs to be in order for the church to grow is for the pastor to be a rancher, a visionary, a leader, a motivator, an instigator, a planner, well above the fray of the ordinary business of ministry. Because if pastors go around getting caught up in things like that, shepherding work, well... It won't be time to grow the church. And it's interesting that those who propose this theory have come up with a numerical calculation. And the particular data point at which a congregation needs to consider transitioning its manner of ministry from that of shepherd to rancher is about the 200 park. You see, uh, churches that are under that, or a hundred or so, well, they're just family churches, if you will. The pastor knows the people by name, and that's good as far as it goes. But if you really want that big church, that corporate model, you need to transition from a shepherd to a rancher. One gentleman testifies how this model of ministry, when he employed it, transformed his church. He said he had um, a moment of real honesty and soul-searching. His congregation was persistently and stubbornly hanging in there, about 70 or so. And Well, he went to a conference and he learned of this model of ministry and he decided that he had a great decision to make. He could continue to be a shepherd and have a family-sized church. Or he could become a rancher and influence thousands. And so his story goes that when he made that great shift in manner, his little family church grew from 70 to 10,000. That's the power of transitioning in pastoral manner from shepherd to rancher. I, I could give you lots of examples. It's, it's a buzz concept in broader church world today about how do you do the work of ministry. And I guess uh, maybe circling back to where we were at the outset of our, our message here this morning, it, it may feel like we were where we were last week and we said, who in the world would bring up stuff like this? It's thought to be boring. It's thought to be irrelevant. It's thought to have no practical application. Certainly it's not funny. So why would we preach about it? Why would we take time to think through the matter of the ideology of ministry? Why would we concern ourselves? Why should you sit and listen to a sermon which doesn't feel evidently practical to you at all? Thinking about manner of ministry. The answer is because Paul does. As the Apostle Paul appeals to the Thessalonians to help establish them in their sense of assurance of salvation, he transitions from manner of preaching to manner of ministry. 
You can see that for yourself in verse 7 as he seeks to make them consciously aware of something. And that thing is how he served them. And you see that under the title here, gentle among you as a nursing mother. But what's interesting to us is the Apostle Paul unfolds the manner of ministry which he believes has been appointed by God, which means it's not an optional manner. Clearly a shepherding model, if you will. He connects it to what? To your spiritual health. And you see that connection as the Apostle forges the link between manner of ministry and spiritual health in verse 12 in those words, so that, so that. Those words look back to the metaphors that have been used now in verses 7 through 11. And they lay hold of them and say, here's the reason why we need to consider such things as manner of ministry. Because here is what it's for. That you would walk in a manner worthy of God. I appeal to you this morning um, as we work our way through manner of ministry where we'll spend most of our time here this morning expounding the Word of God to hang in there. Because the reality is the manner of ministry is inseparable to your own growth and spiritual health. The Apostle himself forges the connection. And so this morning, as we think about what the Apostle says here in these verses, we need to regard it as a message to ourselves about our own need to be aware of what kind of ministry God blesses for you, for His church. We need to be taught and instructed in the kind of ministry we ought to expect and we ought to submit to. So we're going to think about this manner of ministry this morning, which is uh, God has appointed in His church for its spiritual well-being. And we're going to break it down into two parts. The manner of ministry and then the motive of the manner. The manner of ministry and then the motive of the manner. Think first of all the manner of the ministry. And I want us to note here... Again, there are a series of metaphors that are basically relational. And those are the things the Apostle Paul appeals to as he unpacks his manner of ministry. It's as a nursing mother in verse 7. It's as a spiritual sibling or brother in verse 9. It's as a fellow church member in verse 10. And it's as a father in verse 11 and 12. So let's think about those relational terms and metaphors now as ways to understand the nature or manner of ministry appointed by God. So we come to the very first one, a caring mother. And we're going to see here that there's a few qualities which unpack what he means by that. First of all, you can see that he uses a term here, gentle. It means mild, very mild, very kind. It's the same term that the Apostle uses in 2 Timothy 2.24 as he speaks to Timothy. And he says, Let the Lord's bondservant not be quarrelsome, but be kind 
There's your word gentle. I don't know why it's not translated that way, but certainly that's the same word that's used here. He says, in the form of a contrast, you be gentle and not quarrelsome. And that word quarrelsome is a very sharp and intense word. It basically means an arguer. An arguer. A fist fighter. It's a visceral term. Don't be a brawler as a pastor. When you deal with the sheep, Paul says to Timothy, you be gentle. What makes that stand out all the more powerfully is, is how he identifies the pastor. The Lord's bondservant. He says, the Lord's bondservant. He's speaking of the ministry and the pastor here. He's saying, this one who is the minister of the word is one who comes under authority. He comes in the name of Christ and under the authority of Christ with the message of Christ, ministering in the stead of Christ. And when he does that, there is a way for that ministry to be conducted. Not quarrelsome, but gentle. Not sharp, but kind. But what continues to unpack this concept of gentle for us now is the language here, as a nursing mother. As a nursing mother, that um, that word as now tells us Paul is illustrating the concept of gentleness that he has in mind here. And the concept of gentleness that he has in mind here is a mom nursing her small children. And the word here for nursing is one that means cherish. I think that feels like a general term and we all know what it is. But when you see it happen, you know what cherish is. Yeah, little little babies need mom to do everything for them. They, they need them to feed them. They need them to clothe them. They need them to change their diapers. They, they need them to burp them. They need them to wash their clothes. They, they need mom to be busy caring for them 24 hours a day. Who would do that? Who would care for some thing like that. Only somebody who has the closest, most natural bond and connection with them would. And that's exactly the metaphor Paul reaches for as he says, this is a model of ministry that we are to follow. And it stands out even sharper when you put your finger on the first word of verse 7. You notice it's what? But. And, and that stands in sharp contrast to, to something he's just said. So if you look back into verse 6 in the second part of it, it says, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but... Now, the reason why I see this uh, makes this concept of, of gentle as a nursing mother stand out so much is here the apostle concedes. Again, he comes in the authority of being an apostle of Christ. Think of that. That office of apostle was, was only for those who were specially gifted. That office of apostle was an office that came with, with extraordinary authority. It was a unique office. It was a privileged office. It was an exclusive office. There was only 12. 
in a particular criteria. It, it had to be somebody who had been with Christ. It, it, you see here, the Apostle is so well aware of all that... Um, all the privileges that come with this office that he basically insinuates it would be easy for us to come bearing the name of the title and the office and expecting something from you. He says, no, we didn't do that. All the while conscious of the gravity, the weight, the authority of this calling, he says what? We act as gentle as a nursing mother and then he says here among you that, that's the fourth quality of it among you and that speaks of proximity of, of closeness of, of a close contact relationship we, we again can't conceive of a of a nursing mother nursing her child over FaceTime. We like to think this morning that social media breaks the world down into small little parts and shrinks it all and brings us all together. But you can't FaceTime nurturing your child. It can only be done among you. I'm struck here by the Apostle Paul and the way he describes his own ministry then. He says, this is precisely how I behaved among you. Close in relationship. One of the pastors advocating this, and if I mentioned his name to you this morning, all of you would know his name. And one of the things he said is he advocated and wrote an article for thousands upon thousands of other people to read and urging other pastors to adorn the same models. He said this, I don't do counseling, I don't do weddings, I don't do funerals. I don't have much contact with the people of my congregation because if I did, then people might get jealous. So it's almost as if he stands up on his high and holy mountain as this rancher, just watching all unfold below him above the fray. The apostle does not say that. He says, we proved gentle among you. He's not detached. Calvin says that the pastor who stands detached from his audience has not yet been touched by the very gospel he proclaims. Manner of ministry. It's appointed by God. I remember reading this um, nearly 25 years ago. As I mentioned, I worked through this great... Uh, Book of 1 Thessalonians in seminary and my internship. And I, I came across this text and I threw my hands up in the air and I, I went to my pastoral mentor and I, I double-checked with him to see whether I got it right. Because it felt like I couldn't understand it. A pastor as a nursing mother. I was a father of three children and I'd spent all five minutes around them. I spent my nights and days going to school and working three jobs. I had watched my wife nurse and care for and cherish my children, but I'd never done it. And now all of a sudden, here the Apostle says in two, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.7 that this is model of the ministry which God has appointed. You see, it's a term that stretches. It's a challenging term. 
It speaks of a, of a high bar for the ministry, which is grounded in a kind of tenderness and affection and deep concern for the people of God. But you know, there was something that challenged me more in this idea of pastor as nursing mother than I was not able to easily relate to it because I hadn't done it. It was something that I had noticed about life in the church. Having grown up as a pastor's son, having observed the church world for a long time, being a part of it even then, reading widely about it, being in various different churches. One thing that I had noticed over time is that people don't tend to respond to gentleness very well. They respond to strength. They tended to like their pastors more like Clint Eastwood than as the Apostle Paul. A cultural context in the church had shaped an expectation for how ministry was to be done, and this didn't feel like it. And that tells us something this morning, people of God, is that we are not to allow culture to shape our conceptions of the manner of ministry. We are to let the Word of God shape them. It shouldn't be this morning that we shy away from um, a metaphor, a term for ministry, which challenges us just because it doesn't fit with our own expectations. The Apostle says here, this is one of the ways in which the pastor relates to his congregation and they relate to him. It's a model of weakness. A model of weakness. The reason why it's that way is because it's identifying with Christ in His humility. It's identifying with Christ in His humility. We can't reduce Christ to our own single-minded conceptions of Him. There's many facets and images and angles. And so the pastor and the ministry is to in some measure reflect that, although in a fallen and sinful and limited way. But notice here the motives of it all. We've seen the quality of this gentle as a nursing mother model, but, but notice here the motives of it, as you see here in verse 8. And there, there's two motives wrapped around this verb, we were well pleased. You see, that's your big idea for why the apostle was motivated to serve them as a nursing mother, tenderly caring for uh, their children among them. We were well pleased to. It was a pleasure to him to have this kind of relationship. But, but there's two things which intensify that verb. They're both circumstances under which that well-pleasing service took place. And the first one is having so fond an affection for you. This is an extremely intense word here. So fond an affection. You see, his desires for, for the people of God and for their spiritual well-being and for their life and for their family and for all that they were and for the church. And the other, you had become very dear to us. The word is beloved. I remember in my seminary days, I 
preached uh, virtually every weekend for vast stretches of it and all around the United States, basically. And I got to a point where I finally told my wife, I'm sick and tired of it. And the reason was not because I didn't enjoy preaching, I did. The reason of it was I got tired of preaching to people I didn't know. The joy of preaching isn't just standing up in front of people and and expounding. That is a wonder of preaching. That's something that every preacher ought to delight in. But the joy of preaching is bringing the Word of God to the people whom He knows and loves. And that's what the Apostle is saying here. The particular manner of ministry in which he engaged in was born out of this deepest concern and affection and bond with and love for the people of God. And so as he speaks to the Thessalonians to remind them of the pastoral bond and connection, you say, uh, before I go any further, why, why is he going this far into all of this? And the answer is, you, you need to have back in the back of your thinking this, this whole idea here that, that, that people are trying to undermine the Thessalonians in faith by essentially saying that Paul was just a charlatan. He was just like the soapbox preacher that inhabited the town square of every major metropolitan area of the Greco-Roman world. And these were scam artists and people who made a living off of public speaking, saying things that people liked to hear until they got enough money and resources out of them and they went to the next town. And because Paul preached and ministered to them and then he moved on, this was the criticism. You see, those kinds of people don't have any regard for the people whom they serve. It's all very selfish. So the Apostle here is drawing on this series of relational terms to to speak to the Thessalonians about why they should be assured. They are not those who have been psychologically manipulated into now identifying as Christians. They are people who've been saved under the true preaching of the gospel and the faithful ministry of Christ. And he's saying, I want you to remember how I preached and how I ministered among you because these are the ideals of Christ, not the world. Because of that, he says here, this ministry as a nursing mother had two acts and both of them are impartations unto them. Verse 8, We were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives. You see that we imparted to you the gospel of God through the preaching of the word, through the teaching of the word, through catechism and Bible study and private conversation. They imparted to them the gospel. But notice he doesn't do that as one who's speaking through a bullhorn. That's it. He says, we imparted to you not only the gospel, but our own lives. See, that's a very different model of ministry, isn't it? 
It's not the CEO and the pastor as rancher soaring heights above everybody, speaking from on top of the mountain down to everybody else who are mixed up in the fray down here. He said, we uh, did this among you. We pastored next to you. We imparted ourselves to you. Growing up on the family farm, there was a lot of chores I didn't like. I'll tell you one I did. And that was feeding baby calves with a bottle. Feeding baby calves with a bottle. I'd go milk their mama. They had to be put up in special pens away from their the mothers. And they would beller and whine and make noises all day because they missed their mom and they were hungry. But one thing about it is after you're done milking the cows, you, you fill up those bottles to bring out to the baby calves. And there's something so electric about that relationship that forms there between the person feeding the calves and those little ones because their tails start flipping and they start twirling around in circles and they run right up to the fence and they grab hold of that bottle and they slobber and snot comes out everywhere and they just enjoy that bottle. And then when you're doing that, you reach behind their ears and you pet their ears and you tell them it's all going to be okay. That's what ranch hands do. That's not what the rancher does. He's concerned with the business, not with this. There's something about being in that up-close, connected place where the relationship is formed that matters to the manner of ministry. And if you take that out, you change the ministry. The reason why we don't follow the models of Fortune 500 companies and CEO practices and worldly and cultural impulses and ideas and bring them into the church and baptize them with Bible verses is because it's not under Christ. Christ is called the great shepherd of the sheep, not the great rancher of the empire. It matters how we conduct the ministry. Next, the metaphor Paul uses is that of a brother. See it in verse 9. You recall brethren. You recall brethren. And, and the word here is literally the term that you would use to speak of a sibling or brother. This then is adopting that metaphorically and applying it to the, to the, to the church. And essentially the apostle is saying that there's a family relationship among the people of God. And here's what he says. He regards them as spiritual siblings in Christ. Brother. And the, the payoff of that relationship in here, he doesn't spend as much time on this, but, but the payoff of that relationship is spelled out here. He says... Um, Brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And so here he speaks in fronts and accents, in a sense, the uh, 
the outside work that he did so that he could minister to them. He speaks of his labor and his hardship. And these are words which speak of working with your hands. We know about these terms because Paul was a tent maker. In the book of um, Acts, we learned that while he was ministering in Ephesus, he would show up to church with his work clothes on. (laughs) With his sweaty, dirty work clothes on. And that subjected him to criticism because it was just all too earthy and down home. That, that's what he's speaking of here. He, he had to work night and day uh, at his day job and then at night to minister the word so he could be among the people. But, but why did he do it? He says the reason that, that motivated it all was so that um, he wouldn't be a burden. Well, you know what that means? It means I didn't charge you. It's about finances. It's well known the apostle would neglect to receive money sometimes on his missionary journeys from the new congregations he was planting. And he did it specifically so he could avoid the charge that he was trying to rip people off financially. Again, this is appealing to this whole background I mentioned of the the marketplace soapbox preachers. In the book of Corinthians, for example, he says, I could have demanded it of you. I, I was entitled to be paid. He's not against the paid ministry. He's saying, uh, this is the kind of sacrifice I engaged in because my concern was for your soul. And this is how I showed it. He wanted them to discern that the basis of that kind of labor was the family ties that had been formed in their midst, among them, him with them, and them with him, by faith. They shared the same faith. They shared the same Christ. They shared the same salvation. And he says, as a brother, I determined this was the best way to minister to you under your blessing. And then in verse 10, we have another relational term, another metaphor to describe this uh, manner of ministry as he says, you were witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Now we're accenting the uh, mutuality that they have, that they're fellow members of Christ. And here he says there was something about that that made him behave towards them in a way that was seemly and appropriate, member to member. He says it was devoutly, that is free from ungodly action. It was uprightly. It was in an appropriate manner. It was blamelessly. In other words, it was without reproach or complaints. Again, what's his concern? Boy, he doesn't want to be a stumbling block. He doesn't want to trip anybody up. What he wants to do is build them and bless them and strengthen them. So we've seen uh, gentle as a nursing mother. We've seen as a spiritual sibling, a brother. We've seen as a fellow member of grace in the kingdom of God. And, and now, again, 
we come into verses 11 and 12 and we see an amplification as we come back to a family term as a father. Look at verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father his own children. Now again, we're back into the family realm. This is the domestic scene because the term that is used here for father is is the same word that you have in Hebrews 12, 9, right? When he says, we all had our earthly fathers who got out the belt and chastised us, right? Same term. As a father. And the father was the one that had primarily the office of moral instruction and guidance. The great preacher of the ancient church, Chrysostom, said, when Paul wants to refer to his tenderness and affection for his converts, he uses the image of a mother. But when he wants to dwell on instruction and advice, he uses the figure of a father. So that's what's in view here, this directional idea that flows out of the office of father. Guidance, direction, moral instruction, motivation in a sense. And here's what he says. He was a father unto each one of them. To each one. Calvin, uh, commenting on that particular phrase there, says, it's not enough that a pastor in the pulpit teach all in common if he does not add also particular instruction according as necessity requires. So we said that this idea of father, this specific moral guidance and instruction is about taking the substance and the, the rich fare, the meat, the, uh, the smorgasbord of spiritual ac- exposition that takes place in the preaching of the word, bringing it down to bear now to people in their own individual lives as they have need. As a father, there's a concern. Every good father knows this. One of the things you learn as a parent is you don't treat each kid the same. I've heard parents say that, and I said, what? You don't treat each kid the same. You love them all the same, but you don't treat them all the same because they're different. They're individuals, their own um, makeup psychologically and emotionally. The, the, The way you parent has to be tailored to them and to their life and their needs, who they are what they've experienced. That's what he's saying here. He he was able and willing to take the, the Word of God to the whole congregation and then to individuals as he has need. And so he spells out the fatherly relation and how that cashed its way out in practical terms. He says here that they did that exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Now some people would say that these are all synonyms and there's some truth to that, but there's also difference and distinction in these terms. So the first one, exhortation, would be practical admonition, let's say with a pinch, with some urgency to it. Maybe a coach, like a coach. I used to hate it when my coach yelled at me. But you know, that gets something out of you. 
I don't know how it is anymore with coaching and young people, but man, back in the day, they didn't have any problem with yelling at you. If you need to be yelled at, you got yelled at. If you need to do gassers, you did gassers. That's just how it was. Lessons were learned. This is the sense of exhortation here. Calvin calls it a being pricked by exhortation. There's a time and a place for that. Not in an overbearing way, but in a firm way, an exhortational way, with urgency. Then there's encouraging. That's your next term here. It means to console and to comfort. It literally means to speak toward. And so it has urgency and it has authority, but it has, um, even though it has firmness, it has encouragement in it. You can do this. It's that coming alongside of someone and saying, I know where you're at. I've been there myself. There's a way out of this. Just keep moving. Keep working. Keep praying. Keep reading the Word of God. And finally, imploring. This is directive, of course, with firmness, encouragement, and everything that may be in the other words, but probably it has just a little bit more emotion in it, feeling in it, concern in it. I couldn't help but think about this and say, what a, what a wonderful message for fathers. We can't make a whole sermon out of it, but... The Apostle Paul says, this is what it's like to be a dad. This is what it's like to be a father. A father has such regard for his children, such love for his children, such affection for his children, that there will be times when he has to be stern because he wants to protect. And so the rebuke has to be sharp. So it could be felt. So it could be a turning away from what's dangerous. But, but there's also encouragement. One of the things that I think when we hear this biblical admonition about how fathers are to be and to behave, we hear it with the ears Paul provides in Ephesians 6.4 when he says to fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. He says, fathers, you are called to be God's representative. You are the authority of Christ in the home. You are to discipline. You are to train. But you're not entitled to exasperate, to humiliate, to frustrate, to crush. You see, there's a way to exhort without bruising. There's a way to encourage that sympathetic. There's a way of imploring that hits the triggers and notes which will be resonant. They'll understand and they'll feel and sense. And so this morning, fathers, I implore you here to think upon this model of a father here and to, to pray. To say, God, help me to understand how to father like this. Exhorting, encouraging, imploring. 
Well, people of God, I, I said at the outset here, it may feel like all of this is so disconnected to us. This is probably a message for a seminarian, or somebody in course at, at the cemetery trying to become a pastor, if you will. But I, but I remind you now, as you come into the, to the last verse of our text here, in those words, so that, that I've already showed you, uh, there is a manner of the ministry for a reason. And the thing that motivates the manner of the ministry is now spelled out, so we come to our second point, the motive of the manner, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. See, all that he has said here about manner of ministry ties into and connects with this point. Now, people of God, this is about all of us. This is about what all of us need. This is about all of us are called to. This is about the Christian life. Every single one of us is called to walk find this command repeatedly in the New Testament. It, it is a metaphor for the Christian life, for our moral conduct, for the way we treat others, that we serve Christ. All of it is called in Scripture, walk. That walk is described here in a very specific way. Worthy. Not because we're earning anything. That would be the wrong nuance. In a way that's fitting. Paul says, Philippians 1.27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all aspects. Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. It's your duty here this morning. Paul's now speaking to all of us. The manner of ministry has been expounded because this is what it's all for, to help lead the people of God to this. Walk in a manner worthy. And we ought to be struck this morning, people of God, as he lays that out, as he spells it out, as he, as he spotlights the relevance of all of this to you, as he brings forward the Christian life and in all of its fullness and aspects and dimensions here, I want you to notice that he grounds it all upon grace. The reason why we are called to walk in a worthy way is because of what he says at the end of verse 12. God calls you. This is the gospel. This is the great effectual calling. This is that great reference to what God does to us in Jesus Christ. He calls us out of the darkness and bondage of our sin into the light and the hope and the power and the purity and the grace of our salvation. This is God and what He does, enlightening our minds so we can understand the truth. This is what He does in regenerating us so that we are born again so we can see the kingdom of God. This is God enabling us to lay hold of Christ by faith. Look at this massive gospel foundation here. He says, this walk is all on account of where you stand grace. 
Do you know the grace of God in Jesus Christ this morning? It's a wonderful grace. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is that He takes people who are lost in their sins and He brings them graciously and sovereignly and effectually and mightily and sovereignly unto His cross in order that sin's bonds and power is broken. Are you in Christ? As often as we hear the gospel preached, and I love how the Heidelberg Catechism says it, as often as we hear the gospel preached, it is the key of the kingdom of God opening it for all those who say yes. You come to Christ with all of your sins and failings and imperfections and failures. What you receive is grace. This is the Christian life. God who calls you, sets you free from sin and from all of the power of the devil, and He says, walk. And that walk, He has provided for in His grace with a manner of ministry which is designed to help you in that. I conclude with one application here this morning. It is tying together the notions of manner of ministry with the motive of ministry. And my mind couldn't help but run to the canons of Dort. You probably weren't thinking of that. But it's just uh, paragraph 17 in head 3 that I absolutely love. And what it does is make a comparison between how God uses the ministry of the means of grace to bring people to conversion and Christ and the ministry of the means of grace to keep them in Christ. I couldn't help but seeing... That's exactly what Paul was speaking of here. Just as verses 1 through 6 describe the means unto conversion, the preaching of the word, so he speaks now of the manner of ministry, which is the means God uses to keep us in Christ. The canon see there that the first is about the seed of regeneration, which is food for the soul. And this part, the manner, is all about keeping us in that great salvation. And here's what it says, the line that forever grips my soul is this. So even now, it should be far from those who give or receive instruction in the church to presume to tempt God by separating what He and His good pleasure has intimately joined together. Can you see now why my mind ran to paragraph 17 of chapter 3? It's this right here. Far from those who either give, that's the pastor, or receive, that's all of us, instruction in the church. 
Far be it from anyone to tempt God by separating what He has joined together. You see, God has joined the ministry of the means for the keeping of you in salvation. God has joined the ministry of the means to keep you in the joy of your salvation. God has appointed the ministry of the means to keep you walking in the path of salvation. God has appointed the ministry of the means to keep you strong in walking worthy of the kingdom of God. To refresh you and to build you, to encourage you. Is it arcane and irrelevant to us this morning that we should consider what's the best title of the office of pastor? What kind of person helps you? Well, Paul's very clear about what helps you. And that is this matter ministry as a shepherd as a nursing mother as a brother as a fellow member as a father this is the manner he describes he says this is for us so as these means and manner of ministry are applied we are exhorted strengthened carried, motivated, encouraged to keep on doing what God in Christ has called us to after being recipients of His grace. Walk in a manner worthy of God. If we commit ourselves to this means and this manner, we can be sure that God will make sure that He will keep us in His grace. Father, we thank you this morning for the instruction in the manner of ministry. And we thank you for the care of the apostle to, to, to teach the church with so many terms which are well known and clear and understandable and meaningful to us. A nursing mother, a brother, a fellow member, a father. These relational terms speak to us of relationships and things we value. And yet you've, uh, you've uh, appointed them unto a great end, which is our own being kept in grace. So Lord, we pray that uh, as we learn about the manner of ministry, it will be a blessing unto our soul, something for us to feast on and be encouraged by, knowing that you have cared for us in every conceivable way in order that you may keep us in the Lord Jesus Christ, even unto the end. And that's what we long for, and that's what I pray for for everyone who's here this morning. That as God has called them unto His own kingdom and glory, so they would receive the strength and the spiritual preservation in the Lord Jesus to keep walking worthy of God who calls. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.